In 2009, I had the idea to buy Billionaires.com. The Billionaires.com miniseries is your chance to get hyper-valuable and unique takes from celebrity billionaires like Mark Cuban, Grant Cardone, Tony Robbins, and many more. And this guy said, this is great, I love it, I'll give you two and a half million. This series gives you access to exclusive insights from in-person and audio interviews hosted by none other than the founder of the Family Office Club, Richard C. Wilson. Get started now with an official introduction to the $1 billion plus Expert Insights miniseries and see what these nationally renowned billionaires have to say about winning and succeeding in the game of capitalism. This guy, like, like of all the power players I've had in here, he's the smartest guy we've had here. No doubt. Stage now, and he's making his way up. I'm just going to introduce him uh, real quick. Uh, we actually got introduced to Larry uh, from a friend, Leo Hefner, who's been a long-term member of the Family Office Club. I don't know if you're in the room today with us, Leo. Might be following along virtually. Um, he made an introduction um, to Larry for us. He's from Bluefin Management Group. And as many of you know, we purchased um, billionaires.com last year. We're interviewing 33 billionaires. We've got about a dozen of those interviews done. And I had told people through our podcast, if anybody introduces me to someone, would thank them on billionaires.com, would thank them at the live event, et cetera, which we, which we just did with Leo. And we definitely appreciate his help. And we appreciate you being here with us today, Larry. So we're going to sit down and just have kind of a fireside chat and uh, talk about his career, how he started the e-channel and eventually sold it to Comcast for th over $3 billion, and just some insights on business and investing and, and scaling a business at that scale. So this is our last... Um, presentation uh, section for the day. So I hope you enjoy this, this talk. Thank you for being here with us. All right, Larry, thank you for, uh, thank you for being here today. So first of all, I want this to be uh, kind of fun, relaxed, not too formal. Um, and we can take this any way that you want to. I've got some questions, but we can forget about them. If you change, change what you'd like to discuss and go, go a different direction, it's totally fine. I think to begin with, since you've taken something to such a large scale, can you share just how you started the e-channel and how that idea came about in the first place? Sure. Um, first, if I sound a little depressed, it's after listening to the last guy. Boy, I want to shoot myself in the head. Um, I'm a lot more optimistic. I, I grew up here in New York. I grew up in Coney Island. Um, family of immigrants. My, their aspiration for me was to uh, get a civil service job so I could retire and have money and do all of that stuff. I, I ended up getting a job in the cable industry um, here in Manhattan, pulling cables under the streets of New York for $90 a week. Um, I got to know all the roaches and the rats that live underneath New York. Um, but I, I was very fortunate to get into it very early, and um, <clears throat> I kind of grew with, grew with the industry. I, I ended up here in New York as the head of um, operations for Manhattan Cable. I was 25 years old. I had 300-something people more older than I am working for me. <clears throat> but then the, they started franchising cable all around the, the country, and they needed people who knew how to build underground, so I got recruited to go out to LA against my better judgment at first, but it turned out okay. Um, you know, Brooklyn Kid goes to LA and everybody's going to movie premieres and parties and stuff like that. And um, so, you know, I, I started learning about, you know, the, the content side of the business. And plus as the general manager, I, I had finance and everything else. So 
I got some hard lessons there. Um, but the company I worked for went back to Canada. They were sold out, went back to Canada, wanted me to go to Toronto. And I said, I didn't go from New York to LA to go to Toronto. So um, my friend Alan and I just came up with this idea. Then, you know, it was initially MTV of the movies. We said, you know, if if they could do, uh, and Madonna has a new video and point to a green screen, I could do, uh, and Schwarzenegger has a new movie and point to a green screen. Getting very low cost content, um, very high quality. And um, we weren't smart enough to know that no individuals have ever started a TV network. So we wrote a business plan and, um, you know, pitched it. Everybody said, great idea, but you're not Rupert Murdoch. We're not giving you any money until we found a bond house on wall street when we walked in the, the guy had movie posters on his wall and said you know i used to be the entertainment reporter for my college newspaper and we went through the whole pitch and you know at that time it was 60 to 100 million to start a tv network and after three and a half years we started to realize nobody was giving us 60 to 100 million dollars um and this guy said this is great i love it i'll give you two and a half million and I went, you know, what am I supposed to do with two and a half million? It's 60 to 100. And he said, that's all I could sign for. So literally uh, said, you know what? We'll take it. We'll figure it out. Um, I called a friend who was teaching radio, television, film in Austin, Texas, said, I need interns. Have you got any? So he actually started. It's the first and only TV network ever started by people, not media companies. And um, we started with 11 employees and 31 interns. Um, my friend never talked to me again because half the interns never went back to school. They started at the beginning of the summer, they were interns, by the end of the summer, they were vice presidents. <laughs> great, great. So how many pitches did it take to secure the two and a half million when you were looking for the 60? Uh, we must have done 50, 60 pitches, including one where actually somebody threw a book at my head, threw the business plan at my head and said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. How dare you bring this to me? And we walked out with a $500,000 investment from him. So because as a Brooklyn kid, I wasn't getting chased out of the room just because he threw a book. Right. I don't know how many hundreds of people I know in this investor club who think to get started, they need to have $400 million or $200 million or nothing. And then in the end, they either get nothing or they start smaller and have to build up and, and gain momentum. That's how it happens for a lot of people, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, there really is something to that, you know, thing like necessity is the mother of invention. We didn't have money and we had to be incredibly creative. So the first show that I created, I'm, I'm, I'm a weird animal in Hollywood and that I'm a creative with a accounting, the uh, economics degree. Um, and, um, you know, we had to come up with interesting programming at very low cost. So the first real breakthrough show I did was called Talk Soup. Um, and everybody said, you're out of your mind. They said, you want to do a TV show that makes fun of TV shows. And I'm going, yeah, exactly. And they were like, you know, that's never going to work and stuff. It ran 26 years. Um, I was the breakthrough and, you know, kind of the starting ground for Greg Kinnear and, you know, Brooke Burke and everybody else that uh, did it. I mean, the second big one was even worse. I met a tall guy in an elevator here in Manhattan and he was telling me what a great radio guy he was and kept saying, you got to come and watch us and you got to come and watch us. And I was like, oh, God, radio, it's dead for like 40 years. And, um, you know, the guy's name was Howard Stern. and. Um, you know, I just looked at it and said, you know, I don't know if anybody remembers this TV show WKRP in Cincinnati. 
Um, I said, this is the real life KRP in Cincinnati. So when I went back to the team and said, I want to put cameras in this guy's radio studio. They went, okay, we thought you were totally crazy with talk soup, but you know, now you clearly have lost it. And you know, Howard went on to have a pretty good career from now on. <laughs> Well, the economics degree, I would have thought you were on the edge of your seat that whole last talk because there's a lot of uh, economics in there. But I want to go back to your your first story about how you started managing 300 plus people when you're just in your 20s. That can't be totally disconnected from your massive success now. So was that from just work ethic or somewhat good fortune plus work ethic? Or how, how did that happen? A combination too. Number one, I knew how to read in a company where very few people knew how to read. Um, you know, working under the streets of Manhattan was basically, you know, m most people didn't even have a college. I didn't have a high school degree. Um, you know, and here I come with my college degree and they said, how come you learned how to use the equipment so quick and it took us years to learn it? I'm going, I read the instructions. Um, it, it, you know, so I was in a good place at a good time. And then what happened was Time Incorporated when it was still a publishing company, bought the company, bought Manhattan Cable. And um, so you had all the Harbin Yaleys trying to figure out what it is those guys do when they go underground every day. And then there was somebody in HR said, wait a second, there's a guy with an economics degree that's one of them. And I kind of became the translator. So it was a great, great place to, to grow up because I got to know both sides. Um, the B school side and, and tech side at the same it's not, oh, there we go. And, um, you know, it was a great growth period. So I was part of the group that started HBO and <clears throat> Urban Cable and, you know, all of that stuff. And um, we, we had to learn it as we went along because there was no rule book. Great. So as you went along, what's the number one most costly mistake that you could share with the audience on, on scaling the business, building the business, making investments along the way? Well, I think, you know, when I look at entrepreneurs now, you know, I'm involved in a lot of different companies now and stuff. And the one that scares me away the most is when people, when people, you know, always tell me I'm doing this because I'm following my passion. Um, <clears throat> I think it's really one of the worst things you could do. I mean, it's not bad to do something you like, but what happens is when people follow their passion, they, uh, their egos don't let them give it up. I, I come up, I wake up every morning, I have 10 new ideas. By the time I go to sleep, I realize that probably all 10 were dumb. Maybe there's one decent one in there. So most people stick with stuff too long. So when they could be applying themselves and using their time to do things that could be successful, they just won't give up the thing that, you know, they felt was passionate about and they have to keep pursuing. Great. Um, what is the most valuable strategy you could share with the room that's worth far more than a million dollars that maybe some investors or business professionals could benefit from here? Um, well, number one, you know, this whole world of crypto and NFT is going to be around whether we like it or not. But I'll tell you, I, I've been, I kind of like a method actor. I throw myself into businesses just so I could learn them. Um, the NFT world, 95% of the people doing it are scam artists and, you know, they're, they're but the 5% that are real, um, tremendous opportunities there. But you again, it goes back to basic business. Do your due diligence. Uh, a lot of people are in these to make a quick buck and go move off to Puerto Rico or something like that. So you want to avoid those kind of things. 
Great, and I, we've got a lot of uh, friends here in the room when I look out here who manage hundreds of millions of dollars or they own you know, um, 40 apartment buildings, they, they run a big business with 100 employees, but they haven't scaled to the level you've been able to scale at. So for those people who have had success, but it's uh, moderate success compared to the balance sheet you've been able to build, what would be a good strategy for them to hear where they um, are trying to get to that next level and they're, they're a medium-sized business trying to become a really big business or a publicly traded business? Well, I think now you, you really got to look at stuff and, you know, business in general, particularly in my business, the media side of the world. Um, when I first got involved, when I would do a business plan for Time Inc., it would be, um, I would figure out the budgets and then I'd go, okay, I would weight them 95% U.S. and 5% was other. I mean, we didn't even give countries a name. It was just other. Um, now when I do a plan, it's 30% U.S. and we actually name the other countries and stuff. It, we're living in a global world and we really got to start realizing that the U.S. is no longer the center of the world or the only center of the world, that it's a global business and technology has changed so much. I don't care what business you're in, you cannot ignore the fact that content and technology are going to be part of your life and that's what's going to help you scale um i, I was just with a group in the fashion world um where the founders are doing fabulous but it was based on the founders um you can't scale those kind of businesses so we figured out how we could do a um a platform a digital platform that could travel globally and have media components that drive people to those platforms and that's how they're going to scale Great. Uh, in addition to doing exclusive interviews, which you were nicely to nice enough to answer our questions before this uh, in writing, we're also capturing, you know, videos, public talks people have given, uh, reading books people have written who are billionaires like Michael Jordan and uh, Mark Cuban and uh, Jay-Z, Ariana Huffington, et cetera. And one thing I've noticed with some of them is that they have a, an extreme work ethic, you know, and Michael Jordan's at the top of his game. He's still practicing seven hours a day more than other people. And Mark Cuban's already a billionaire. He's learning 24-7 and working 24-7, it feels like. So I wonder, when you look back at your success and peers that have gotten to your same level of success, how much of it is grinding 10 times harder than everyone else and being very smart and being a little bit in the right spot at the right time with some people? And, or how much of it was really being very sharp and planning and being thoughtful? And it's not about some of these examples you see out there where people are just working 24 seven to quote unquote, make it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've always uh, looked at hiring people smarter than me. So I surround myself with those people. So um, I'm a wannabe chef. So I just have six o'clock at night. That's it, six to eight or, you know, when I'm gonna cook and, uh, you know, two to three is when I go to the gym and stuff. And I don't give those things up for anything. Um, and it keeps me grounded, keeps me sane, and keeps and gives me the the health and the energy to focus um, my limited brain power on whatever I'm doing. Right. So uh, Ariana Huffington is famous for going out there and saying, like, "Don't kill yourself working. It's not good for you." Uh, you know, after she worked so much that she passed out and hit her face on a desk or something and broke her jaw. I can't remember the exact strategy or the exact story. But it's interesting, like she was already a billionaire, I believe, when that happened. So I think it's sometimes easier for people to think, oh, okay, well, if you're already worth hundreds of millions or a billion dollar plus, easier to hire 800 people and take your foot off the gas a little bit. Along the way though, were you hiring people smarter than you along the way? Or was it once you became 
really successful that you were able to afford to hire the right people and you didn't have to work as hard once you had that big momentum? Um, it, w it was hiring smart people all literally all along the way. And, you know, I, I love interns because um, they all think that they have something to prove. Uh, I built a company in China. I have the only Western media company in China. Um, and the way we built it, I would bring in interns from USC and UCLA, grad school kids. Um, they had to be born in mainland China. They had to want to return to mainland China because I don't want them staying in the U.S. They were no use for me. Um, but we, um, I took the best of the interns, put them in the U.S. company. They worked for a year. They go back to China. So now I have, I'm the only white face in the entire company. Um, but it's, you know, all kids born and raised in, in mainland and great work ethic and stuff. And typically, you know, two business degrees and stuff. So way smarter than me. And they're a great sounding board for me because I do, I do a lot of content development there. So I have to understand the way people live and work there. So um, it, it worked out well. Great. Um, so what was a, a major like strategic asset or choke point you were able to acquire that led to very fast growth? Or what was like a turning point where e-channel was moving along, but then all of a sudden it just took off because of one action or one asset you acquired? Yeah, well, you, you know, we started out really relying very much with that MTV model where, you know, MTV was getting music videos from the record companies for free we were getting movie trailers from the studios for free. And the business model was great because I took the bit, I took these trailers that they couldn't get on television because they were too long for TV ads. And I guaranteed them that I would play those trailers. Um, and so I started building an audience and did a lot of audience research. And then I would go to the marketing department there and say, here, look at all the people watching. Don't you want to reach people who are interested in going to movies? Took them three years to figure out that they were spending ad money to go around the content they were giving me for free. Um, they caught on and, you know, it was not pretty, but uh, we, we survived it. Great. And then how about now? How do you vet projects, partners, relationships at this point? What type of criteria do you have? What, what is your focus? Well, we, we like stuff that has a media bent in it, you know, because I look at everything that we invest in and... Um, you know, I, I just have this thing. It's like if the, the founders get hit by a bus, do I really want to get myself into the day to day? Um, and, it, you know, because I know that some points I'm going to have to that's going to happen. I'm going to have to jump in, not necessarily really hit by a bus, but uh, something bad could happen. Um, I, I'm pretty accessible on social media. People get to me. Um, I have this thing. I never answer my telephone. But if you email me, I never go to sleep without answering every piece of email every single day. Um, so people have gotten really used to the fact that if you really need an answer from me, send me an email. Because I'll deal with it on my schedule, not taking a phone call and dealing with your problem on your schedule. What about um, Facebook or LinkedIn messages? Do you ever respond to those? I respond to all of them. I respond to too many of them. Um, and stuff. I don't, I like stuff short and concise because again, you know, I have limited time. So, you know, people are always, I don't, I don't join places like Soho House because I would go there and everybody would go, I know you're really busy, but could you just give me some notes on my script? No, I, I give me the one log line and I'll tell you whether I'm going to be interested in it. And, you know, maybe I'm interested in reading the script, but usually not.
Great. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. We often talk about at our events just to get your stuff down to a one-liner. Otherwise, yeah. it's, it's just too long. Um, so we're growing billionaires.com. We're interviewing uh, billionaires uh, to get strategies and advice for them. What, what advice would you have for other people here in the room, though, that are approaching uh, multi-hundred million dollar families or billion dollar plus families? Um, like what, what is the best approach besides being very concise just for peers that you meet? Maybe not just for you individually, but just in general, if you were to coach or mentor somebody on accessing that level of a, a successful person? Yeah, I mean, no, number one, you know, we just said keep it short. I mean, keep it down because, again, you know, for folks like me and stuff, time is just, you know, uh, one of the most important things I have to conserve. But the, the other thing that works incredibly effectively is find someone who could introduce you into that group. Like, if somebody comes to me blind, now I got to like, I got to do due diligence on them. And, you know, we talked about, are they a good person? And, you know, I got to do all that stuff. I just don't have the time for that. But if you come in through someone that I know, I'm going to typically assume they've done a little bit of due diligence there and it's going to save me the time and I'll actually pay attention. I'm guessing the average super ultra wealthy person isn't spending tons of time on TikTok. But if you were to look at uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, mm -hmm. Um, what would be the, the platforms that you think your peers actually spend time on and are the most responsive on out of those? Um, I, I, I'm on, I, I'm on Facebook. I do my Facebook myself. Um, all the Instagrams and all the other stuff, actually somebody in the office does their fake me's. Um, but I'm, I'm actually doing a movie. Well, I started out as a movie called Empress, which is now turned into a mini series for Netflix. It's about the first woman to rule China. It's being done with American-born Chinese, Canadian-born Chinese, because we're doing it in English. I'm casting the movie from TikTok. Okay, awesome. So, corrected. Uh, what was interesting, though, about what you said is that one of our team members was like, oh, we should be more on Instagram because, look, uh, your one client, Richard, is worth $400 million. Uh, he's on Instagram. And I was like, yeah, he is on Instagram, meaning his brand is. But I don't know if he personally spends time on there. To your point, it might be his company putting out PR, et cetera, right? Yeah, I mean, you got to, you know, if you're involved in anything that involves consumer habits and pop culture and stuff like that, um, Instagram is good. But tick, I find TikTok being really what kind of guides me as to where, you know, younger folks are, you know, spending their time. Sure. What about uh, publications, um, direct mail that you would get that, that adds value? Are there are there platforms or publications or direct mail things that are good for someone who's trying to develop a relationship with a, a family at your net worth level? Or are you traveling so much and you get, get so much junk in the mail that you don't really consume too many publications? Um, no, actually, I, I consume a lot. I probably read 50 magazines a month, and I probably read four books a month. I mean, I'm a voracious reader. I, I've now gotten away from watching television at night, and I just read. Great. Uh, what's the smartest interview question that someone else has ever asked you that I, that I should have asked? Um, Everybody says, you know, what, what do you, what was your biggest mistake or biggest failure or, you know, where, what, what was it that you missed? Um, somebody just asked me this the other day. Um, it's a little embarrassing to say, but I turned Ryan Seacrest down six times and I basically said, Ryan, you're a nice boy. You should be thinking of accounting. Um, he showed me a thing or two. Great. What's a uh, counterintuitive lesson or insight that you could provide to the audience here today that was not obvious to you for a decade or two decades that you could share? Um, that a lot of times you got to use your gut as opposed to 
algorithms and you know everybody told us that we couldn't do e and stuff like that but um you know sometimes you got as much more intelligent than you know the algorithm rhythms and stuff and you know you got to go with it stick with you know stick with your gut if it's something you know well don't give it up because everybody's telling you that doesn't fit the algorithm Great, thank you. Uh, we're going to open it up to questions in just um, one minute. Um, but because you're so connected in the media world, any predictions besides the fact that NFTs and crypto is not going away? You mentioned that earlier. Anything else due to your network and media that you want to emphasize um, that you could share that maybe isn't obvious to the rest of us? Sure. Um, actually, in the audience, uh, my friend Dina is here. Dina works for a company called Lighthouse that does immersive entertainment. If any of you here in New York or actually anywhere in the country have seen Immersive Van Gogh and now it's Immersive King Tut and stuff, um, tremendous opportunity in, in the immersive world. Um, we, we actually are controlling rights for that stuff and building those in China. Um, hopefully in the next few months we'll, when COVID goes away, um, we'll be able to actually start that. But I think Immersive, I think you got to look at AR and VR. Um, uh, again, those are going to be enormous, and um, I, I'm, a, I'm really into the use of holograms, um, but for education, everybody thinks they work for entertainment. I, I don't think it works for entertainment. I think it's, en I think it's education. I'm actually, I sit on the um, advisory board of the Einstein Foundation, and we actually have all this video of Albert, um, so we could reassemble the, the video so that if you look at a college campus and you go into the auditorium, it's usually a boring professor and the kids are sleeping. Um, but what if Albert Einstein taught you the theory of relativity? So literally, if this holds up, I could find the best teachers of any subject in the world and they could teach any kid in the world. And when you do it with holograms, it, you could put it in native language. So I could have Albert teaching Mandarin in China and he's speaking Portuguese in Brazil and English in, in here. It could revolutionize and, and level the playing field of education around the globe. Great. Yeah, and I think in this room there's a ton of uh, applications for uh, VR and AR for walking through um, a piece of real estate or walking through a manufacturing floor, et cetera, where it, maybe instead of going to an on-site visit to begin with, if someone's going to write a seven-figure check, maybe they get a little VR tour with their, their headset that's been shipped to them as a sure. first step, right? Uh, great. We've got time for just two quick questions, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, and I guess we have two right in front, which makes it real simple. So, Charlie, hand to the microphone there. Uh, so, you come from entertainment world and industry. Uh, one of my family business is also entertainment, particularly radio channels. And we have cameras in our radio channels. Yeah. And uh, we have about 11 channels, 29 million listeners, unique listeners worldwide. So any advice for us in future, where it's going and where, it, where, where, where our, uh, should be looking at, what should we be looking at? I don't think there's any such thing as, as a single plat technology platform. So you gotta really get into the whole social media world and the NFT world and stuff like that. You need to focus on, you know, over-serving audiences of common interest. Um, and you got to find them wherever they are. Sometimes they're on the radio, sometimes they're on the internet and whatever. So I would pick out like what, what are the core audiences that follow your radio stations and figure out how you grow that out and basically, you know, control them, their time, you know, over a longer period than just drive time. Great. Thank you. And uh, Josh. Um, it's great to meet you. Uh, I, I, 
wonderful interview. Those are some great questions that basically <laughs> I, I, I want to mimic. Here's my quick question for you. We would probably be surprised. My guess is we're all going to be surprised at what was the most lucrative part of building E. Was it selling commercial time or was there some other awesome part of the business plan that we might not even realize? Um, it's interesting the way that um, cable networks are valued. Um, and a lot of it is not traditional in terms of they didn't measure cash flow or anything like that. It was subscriber value. Um, so if you, the more subscribers you have, you basically got a multiple of dollars based on the subscribers, nothing to do with your profitability uh, or your cash flow issues. So, you know, when you, when you hit 20 million uh, subscribers, everybody realizes that you're not going away, that you're sustainable, and that if this management team isn't smart enough to figure out what the programming it should be, get rid of them, and the next management team will fill it, figure it out. Um, so even before we were profitable, we had, um, I think we were valued at Jeffries or somebody valued us at like $600 million. And, you know, I mean, for me, these are crazy numbers, but. Or anything like that? Like, did you own any of the businesses you promoted through your television shows? Yeah, um, the, the, probably the best one we did was um, a guy came to me with this thing called 777 film or movie phone. Uh, which ended up getting acquired by AOL for 475, I think, and um, he didn't have any money to advertise, and I wasn't selling 100% of our inventory anyway. So I said, "Great, I'll give you a million dollars worth of advertising, but I want to own 10% of your company." Um, and for him, it was a no-brainer. He grew it into a 500 million dollar company, and for us, you know, we took basically an unused asset and turned it into 50 million dollars. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Good questions. And uh, let's give Larry a big round of applause. Thank you. Thanks.